and welcome to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. For those of you who are subscribers to this newsletter each week, you know that we feature a variety of thought leaders here on the studio. We have best-selling authors, CEOs, industry titans, and people who've generally gained a following based on their expertise. And today is no different. I'm delighted to welcome to the set Pamela Fuller, who is Franklin Covey's chief thought leader on our new offering, Unconscious Bias. Pamela, welcome. Thanks so much, Scott. I'm thrilled to be here. Delighted you joined us. Our topic today is this sort of new term that we're hearing a lot about in the corporate world and the marketplace called unconscious bias. You've been an associate in the firm for five or six years now? Yep. Yep. You serve as both a client partner and an author and a keynote speaker and sort of a product architect and an advisor to our own culture. It's a lot, you got a lot going on. Yeah, I'm collecting titles, right? <laughs> you are. Well, you're also <laughs> um, wife and daughter and mother to two young boys as well. We had some things in common there. Absolutely. I find great refuge in seeing all of your postings on Facebook about your boys, because I have three boys and you have two, and we have a lot in common when it comes to that. Absolutely. And you know, they steal the show, right? They're they the do. center of everything. They, they've stolen the show from me, and that's hard to do. So <laughs> glad to have you here. I want to make a bit of an introduction, because today is a little bit of a coming out for you in terms of our thought leadership around the topic of unconscious bias. Before I talk about what your role looks like, spend a minute and tell us kind of your professional journey. How did you develop this passion and interest around unconscious bias and kind of walk through some of your professional highlights? Absolutely. So I think most of the things that we're all most passionate about is born from experience. Sure. And so my whole career has been connected in one way or another to issues of diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so I started my career in the nonprofit space really supporting immigrant families mm -hmm. and un, un, marginalized groups sure. um, in the DC area. Okay. I relocated to Miami and worked for a long time for a nonprofit that supports people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, really working to bring those folks into society. Mm -hmm. um, and then I moved to DC, and, or back to DC, mm -hmm. um, where I worked for the Department of Defense in an office of diversity and inclusion, really ensuring that our Department of Defense mirrored the people that it supports, right? Mm -hmm. The American people. And then joined Franklin Covey, where I get to work in on our government team, serving yeah. public sector clients. Yeah. How honorable it is for us to have someone with such a broad experience that you brought from the not-for-profit sector and also the public sector to help our company become more aware internally of how we can build a stronger culture from your experience, but also helping to have government organizations benefit from the value that Franklin Covey has to offer. Offer. So you've got a, you've got kind of both sides mastered. So. And I think that's so important. It's interesting, those perspectives, speaking of bias and perspectives, they are really different, but when you've been in both, you can find the similarities. Right, right, right. We're honored you're here. We hope you stay for a long time. Thank you. Let's talk about today's theme, which is unconscious bias. It's a term we hear a lot about, and you've become kind of our global expert on this, helping to raise up other expertise as well. You are the lead author of a new book that Franklin Covey is publishing called Unconscious Bias. That'll be out in about a year from now, but in the interim, we're launching a, a, a mini book. We call it a monograph, but to most people, it's a mini book. 20, 25 pages mm. will be out May 1st. That um, comes right alongside the launch of our new offering. Uh, level set everybody. We hear this term unconscious bias a lot. Educate us on what it is, why it's important, and why it's so prominent in every organization right now. Absolutely. So unconscious bias, it's also called implicit bias, okay. and they are the same thing. So those are interchangeable okay. words. And it's really the reality that 
Our brain is a supercomputer, but it suffers from a capacity problem. So at any given moment, we are taking in 11 million bits of information, and we can only consciously process 40 of them. So there is a delta, there's a gap between what we can consciously process and all of the stimuli around us, everything we're experiencing. And the way that our brain handles the gap is through cognitive shortcuts. It's programming, if you think of it in a computer sense. So it's programming and all these automatic systems in our brain that help us navigate the world. And that is where bias lives. That in that automaticity, we can sometimes make judgments that are not accurate. Mm -hmm. And it's not always negative. Mm -hmm. I, for our purposes, we define bias as a preference because it is a natural part of how the brain works. So there's no shame in that. We just need to be aware of, somewhat, of, of, of what some of those automatic things are. So when I think of unconscious bias, mm -hmm. I think of it trying to fix me, not in a bad way, that I have some shame around it, but you're saying not all biases are negative. Absolutely not. I mean, there are organizations that have a bias towards action or a bias towards innovation, and that's good. As an individual, you might actually have a bias towards bringing different thoughts into the fold, right? One of the most common things I hear about really strong leaders, and I think we've all had this experience. So there's the sort of leader that surrounds themselves with people just like them, mm -hmm. who sort of confirm all their brilliance. Mm -hmm. And then there's the sort of leader who has the insight to know, this is what I'm really good at, and I need to surround myself with people who are good at all these other things so that we can be stronger together. It takes a level of maturity and wisdom and experience as a leader to appreciate that, don't you think? Absolutely. It doesn't come easy or, or early to everybody's career. No, and it's, it's um, unnatural, right? right? Because bias is a natural part of our perspective and how we see the world, part of that automatic programming is for sameness, for likeness. It just feels more comfortable. And even in our conversation, right, we've got these boys, and it is the thing every time we've seen each other, we right. mention these First boys, thing, right? right? It's our sameness. It's the thing that we can... Um, that we can share and right. sort of put ourselves on an equal level of understanding because yeah. that's what's natural, it's what's safe. And so it's counterintuitive, it's hard to sort of move outside of that uh, impetus or that desire. Mm -hmm. We had dinner recently, we talked about the types of biases there are, and you mentioned they're not all bad. You talked about some things like confirmation bias, run through some of those so people can have a kind of a starting knowledge around this concept around conscious and unconscious biases. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of research has been done in this area. A lot of that research is grounded in education and criminal justice because that's where they see sort of the biggest disparities. And I think more recently it's being brought into the organizational context, which is our purpose, right? One of the things that, one of the reasons we're exploring this work for organizational results. So all of that research has, has um, garnered sort of a list of all of the different biases, all the different shortcuts that our brains manifest. And that list is over 180 biases long. Mm. Some common biases, and these are just a couple, and what our research has shown can be really prevalent in our thinking. Um, so I'll talk about three. Confirmation bias, affinity bias, which we sort of touched on, and then negativity bias. Great. So confirmation bias is our desire to seek out information that confirms our existing belief. So if I think bananas are the best thing to have for breakfast, what I put in Google is bananas are the best thing to have for breakfast. And then I get all this data and information that proves that bananas are better than oatmeal and they're better than eggs and they're the best thing to have for breakfast. Mm -hmm. Now if we put that in sort of an organizational sense, we can think about people's education. So I have an MBA um, and I could, I, like to think I'm good at my job, right? My boss thinks so, I'm still here. Um, and so I might, when I'm hiring, say the people who are gonna be the best suited for this job are people with an MBA. 
Maybe even from your own institution. Maybe right? even from my own institution. And so then I intentionally am, I can even put that in as a job requirement, mm. right? But requirement is a strong word. Is it a requirement? Or do I am, am I just looking to confirm this belief right. that I had? So then I hire someone with an MBA from the place where I got an MBA, and they are phenomenal. And it just confirms my belief that to do well in this role, you need to have an MBA. Um, the second one I wanted to talk about was affinity bias. And that is our desire for sameness. Hmm. That same feels good. That when we say, I am like you, it translates into, I like you. So there's some truth to that adage of people like people like themselves. Absolutely. People like people like themselves. Leaders like people like themselves. They see themselves reflected, and right. it feels safe, right. and it feels like that's the way that I will be effective. I read a quote in the guidebook from our founder, Dr. Covey, that said, we see the world as we are, not as it is, and it's a powerful statement. Absolutely, and we see things as fact that are not fact. Mm. It's how we feel about a situation. Mm. So mm. I feel like mm -hmm. if Scott and I have this thing in common, we'll be able to work together mm. better. And I potentially don't seek opportunities to work with people um, with whom I don't have things in common. Because we assume uh, perhaps future conflict or disagreements, we avoid that. Absolutely. Yeah. And even outside of just the selection, when we think of affinity bias, it can also manifest itself in the sense that you give people the benefit of the doubt if they have that sameness. Mm. Right? So it might deprive others from that. Absolutely. They you don't. know, how do we respond to a mistake? So three people make a mistake. This one happens to be just like mm, me. Sure. And I say, well, of course it's only human to make mistakes. Yes. These two are super different. I say, yes. how could they? Right. Don't they understand the stakes of I was what thinking we're doing? In my mind of how I've done just that as you were saying it. <laughs> it's yeah. hard. It's it's right. um it's a natural impulse. Talk about negativity bias. So negativity bias is the, the tendency to hold on to a negative piece of information and just forget all the positive. Mm. So we have a stronger memory for that negative thing. So if you think from a sales perspective, you hit all your quarters for three years and then you miss a quarter. And you hold on to the fact that you missed the quarter versus all that success. Or the person you work for holds on to the fact that you missed the quarter versus all that success. I actually think of it a lot in terms of my kids. So I have a nine-year-old and screen time is a big deal when you're nine years old. Um, and so like in the summer, the screen time rules get lax. Right, we can we can do more screen time in the summer, and then that first week of Which school. Which you'll regret in September. Right. It, well, there. that's exactly where I'm going. September. So September, you reinstate the rules. Yes. They are not unfamiliar with these rules. Yes. They were the rules three months ago, yeah. and they hold on to this that you they can't do something. Right. You never let me. Right. You right. never let me on the iPad. You just spent three months on the iPad. Are you at my house or in your house? <laughs> it's true. Pamela, what's the difference then between? unconscious bias mm -hmm. and prejudice. Because you mentioned that not all bias is bad, but what's the, what's the difference there? So prejudice is really an impact of bias. We define bias as a preference because it is a natural part of how the brain works. If we define bias as a prejudice, it becomes inherently negative and people get defensive. They're not necessarily willing to explore that. But if we can identify when we have bias and then separate ourselves a little bit from the feeling or experience, to why we are having that feeling or experience, we can make a conscious decision about whether that is benign, negative, or positive. And if it is negative, then absolutely we must take action. But if it's not, then it might be a bias that is serving us, depending on what it is. I'm guessing as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of the biases that I probably have at the surface. As a white 50-year-old man, I'm not very popular right now. <laughs> Maybe it'll swing back my way, I don't think so. But I'm thinking of some of the biases that come to my mind, gender, uh, race, sexual preference. I'm guessing there are 
many more biases that I have that are unconscious that I need to surface. Are there some other ones that come to mind immediately? Absolutely. And I don't want to negate the impact of gender bias or racial bias or sure. the challenges with sexual orientation right. and gender identity. Um, but lots of the circles that lots of us operate in, if we think of the entire country, we don't necessarily encounter those things on a day-to-day -day basis. But there are lots of biases around education level, around the geography someone's from. You know, mm -hmm. what do you think when you call someone and you don't quite know where they're from and they've got a Texan accent or right. um, the Deep South, right? right. Um, and how we respond to that, our personality. So or you, a northeastern accent. Right? Absolutely, yeah. the Bostonians yeah. of right. the world, the right. New Yorkers, right. um, a couple other things. But we uh, the, uh, the a number of biases that we probably deal with are massive. Did you say 180? 188. Wow. Yeah. yeah 188. Eight. Wow. And I'm guessing when someone gets more educated, more in depth with their own biases, they could probably be overwhelmed. Absolutely. Right? The more I, the more, if you had me put down a pen to paper, I probably could think of 60 or 70. At some point, there has to be like some reason to say, okay, it's like a, I'm probably biased by everything. It's not a bad thing. It's my preferences. What's the best way for someone like me to uncover what are my most detrimental biases mm. amongst others? So I think the reality is the more you learn about it, the more you see bias in everything that you do. Right. So I walked in right. the studio today right. and I saw some people for the first time right. who had previously just been email addresses and right. people that we had right. worked with. And so I had some biases that came up just from looking at them. Yeah. The question is always, what is the impact? And I think you can start with where your role is. So if you're a leader, you might start with some of the decisions that you're responsible for on a day-to-day -day basis. So you have a team that reports to you, and in a lot of ways, their career is in your hands. Um, so that everyone has sort of their own uh, road professionally, and they can make their own decisions. But whether they get a promotion, whether they get to work on an upcoming assignment, you know, the company is taking on a new initiative, and who do we assign to that? Mm -hmm. Those decisions do impact people's careers over the long term. And so as a leader, I think it's easier and more impactful to start there than to start hmm. necessarily with, you know, do I live in a diverse community yeah. or those right. kinds of things, right? right? Um, and they're important to examine, but it can sometimes feel safer to start with that professional role. Sure. Pamela, is there a difference between unconscious bias and conscious bias? I think that conscious bias is something that you can state. So lots of people, people Meaning, might say... I like 40-year-olds more than I like to work with 20-year-olds, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Or um, when you think of salespeople, you might say salespeople need to be extroverted. So you're interviewing the salespeople or yes. consultants, right? right? We work a right. lot with consultants. So consultants need to be really articulate and extroverted. Right. Right. And in the interview, you've got someone who takes some time to open up, right? It's just an hour. You have an hour-long interview to make these big decisions. Um, so... Yeah, it makes sense. Let's, um, let's get practical for a moment. So I've heard you also say in other speeches and environments that sort of awareness is half the problem, half the solution, right? Just kind of as I leave the set today, no doubt I'm going to be more aware, more mm -hmm. conscious of mm -hmm. my unconscious biases. And what do I do about it? I mean, how, how do I come to work tomorrow or this afternoon and be a better leader, a better colleague, a better culture builder in an organization what are some ta practical tips? I've heard you talk about you know, empathy and things like that. Walk me through some of the tangible things that anybody, especially leaders, can do mm -hmm. to be not just mindful of, but to start to action 
around our biases. Absolutely. So our approach is really grounded in three skills or competencies. So empathy, curiosity, and courage. Okay. So when we think of empathy and curiosity, I see them as two sides of the same coin. So empathy is much more interpersonal and curiosity is much more intellectual okay. in terms of how they manifest. But when we think of one, it fuels the other and vice versa. So you and I meet and I don't have any natural, like, well, this is a, a white man uh, who's been with Franklin Covey for quite some time, an executive. Mm -hmm. Say when I first started, when we first met, right. actually right. I was in the interview process right. for joining Franklin Covey. That, right? And so here I am, and you live in Salt Lake City right. um, in Utah, and here I am living in DC, which right. is different from Salt Lake yeah. City in lots yeah. of ways, had never been to Utah. Yeah. Um, and I'm a person of color, I'm a woman, right. and just feeling that sort of separation. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel- Chasm, in, really, right? I mean. Two people couldn't have more differences than you and I, perhaps. And I can write a whole story in my head about Please what don't. that means about Scott. <laughs> no. Um, and so when I think of empathy, we didn't have that necessarily an initial interpersonal connection, right? I didn't see myself in you. Yeah. But if I use these behaviors of curiosity, I mean, going back to our boys, right? Curiosity is so big in children. They ask a lot of questions. They ask critical questions, questions you wouldn't think of. And they actually listen to your response. I think as adults, we might even learn, well, I, I'll ask the questions, right? right? But then we don't really listen for the response sure. because we think we already know right. it. Um, so really listening empathically and then building follow-on questions based on those responses. And if you do that, if you do that as a behavior, you build empathy, right? Because we find things that we can connect on. Reminds me of a phrase I, I read recently in preparation for one of these interviews where someone said, and I'm sorry, I can't credit it. I think it was a gentleman that said, I don't like that person. I need to get to know them better. I have read this. And I love that because I thought a lot about that to say that makes a lot. And I started to think about people that I don't necessarily like. And I thought, you know what? Have I given the benefit of the doubt beyond just that one instance where they turned me off? Because I imagine I've turned some people off. Mm. And I kind of thought, gosh, if they got to know me better, they might like me more. Mm -hmm. huh. I think I, when I read it, it was credited to Abraham Lincoln. Huh. And he said, I do not like him. I must what is it? get to know Red him to more. Abraham Lincoln, right? Right. The internet, right? There is <laughs> yeah. that. That's Al Gore. Anyway, yeah. So I think that that is, again, so counterintuitive, right? We make quick decisions. Yeah. We sort people. That's what right. our brain does. It puts people in categories. Right. Yes, no. I like right. them. I don't. And then we move on. And that is exacerbated with the pace at which we're all operating today. Mm -hmm. But if we can take 15 minutes to ask some questions and really cultivate a meaningful connection. And that word meaningful is important because people can do that artificially, but you feel that. You know, can you tell when someone's listening to you? Sure, and as I'm listening to you, I think that's also a struggle for me because as you know, I have a fairly, and I'm quite vocal about this, a fairly efficient mindset mm. and I struggle and work to have a more effective mindset. One of my biggest areas of growth is, is with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. After 25 years almost here, I'm still struggling with, I mean, I don't lack the empathy gene. Yeah. I don't lack the curiosity you know, mindset, but I struggle making sure they balance in my relationships as I'm sort of on to the next thing, right? Mm. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about the future. My wife often says, kind of be in the present, yeah. right? Don't just ask the question and move on to the next. So it's a, it's a struggle for me. It is hard. I mean, knowing something is rarely enough. So we all know 
what the right thing to do is around leadership. And we know now these skills of empathy yeah. and curiosity. To know and not to do is not to know, to quote Dr. Covey. Absolutely. So it's hard to do. Empathy, curiosity, and what was the last one? Courage. Courage. Talk about that. So, so our approach includes four ways to act with courage. The courage to identify bias, the courage to cope with it, the courage to be an ally, and the courage to be an advocate. And there's a bit of a spectrum there. Run through those again. Those are profound. Yeah. The four parts. The courage to identify bias. Okay. The courage to cope with bias. Okay. The courage to be an ally. And the courage to be an advocate. Talk about all of those, please. So there's sort of a spectrum. Okay. Because we think of courage as big, bold, brazen action. Right. Right. right? right. And the reality that courage doesn't always manifest in those ways. So just identifying courage sorry, identifying bias, right. is a courageous act right. because it requires introspection and some acknowledgement that biases you hold may not be serving you, may be limiting your possibilities or that of those around you. Mm -hmm. And even as a bystander, identifying bias in other circumstances of your colleagues or an organization that you're part of or mm -hmm. your neighborhood, mm -hmm. um, that takes courage because it's a little bit of discomfort and we have to right. acknowledge we have growth to there do. There can be risk with that, right? Absolutely. I mean, social media and small networks and small towns, so to speak, yeah. And so we have to be careful, but mm -hmm. it is a courageous right. act. The courage to cope really acknowledges the harm that can be done to your well-being mm -hmm. and your sense of belonging, which is a primal human need, mm -hmm. if you feel like you are the recipient of bias. Mm -hmm. So how do I deal with that? I'm not always in a safe circumstance. Or in a powerful position. Or in a powerful correct position. Correct it or survive the, the fallout from addressing it. Absolutely. Yeah. So how do I deal yeah. with it? How can I step away and really deal with it? Um, the courage to be an ally. When we feel pain or some sort of harm, we respond to that. It takes courage to see somebody else feel pain or some sort of harm and ally yourselves to them, to lend your voice to making progress on that thing. And then finally, the courage to be an advocate, which is on the bolder side. So how can we make a change? If we see something systemic happening, or if we see an individual who's chronically being left out of important organizational meetings or interactions or decisions, how can we advocate for that people, those people, or for our organization as a whole to really evolve and be more inclusive? So empathy, curiosity, and these sort of four parts of courage mm. is your best right now sort of actionable advice for everyone to take the biases that they're starting to uncover, unconscious biases, mm -hmm. and sort of what they can do differently about it in the workplace. Absolutely, just taking some time. Let's get even more practical. Are there some pervasive, obvious, most prevalent unconscious biases that in all of your research and our new offering and your work with clients that you say these are the most prominent ones, that if these could be addressed, every culture could see some incremental progress? I don't think it's fair to say that there are some that are more pervasive than others. I think what is fair to say is that each context has some biases that are more pervasive than others. So there might be organizations that have decided we really need to focus on gender equality. Because they were told to by a judge, their, their, their board said they needed to, somebody place some pressure on them. Yeah, so sometimes it's top down, right. sometimes it is legal, right. and sometimes it's their customers. So customers yeah. really, customers make decisions, and even in our role right. as customers, right? With their right? pocketbook. 
Absolutely. We want to work with a company and spend our money with some place that really is building a culture and treating all their employees, you know, equally and and, and reflects our values. Right. Right. So if I say right. this is important to right. me, and then right. I give all my money to someone, yeah. someone, right, yeah. the company, um, that is not reflective of that, then I feel hypocritical. It seems like the days of boycotting firms for misaligned values have moved to supporting firms who do. You don't hear a lot about boycotting anymore, mm. but you hear a lot about consumers investing with or putting their money with uh, vendors, suppliers, retail stores yeah. that reflect their values, reflect their interests. I think that that is something that the marketplace grabbed hold of, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that's part of innovation is that there were companies and organizations who were founded on the hope and trust that yeah. consumers would do that. Yeah. Yeah. And consumers have done it. Right. And so that area of the marketplace has yeah. thrived. Yeah. Talk about the offerings. So Franklin Covey is just introducing this new offering as part of our All Access Pass yep. subscription service. You've been, this is like a baby, like your third son, your third daughter, right? Um, so the daughter I don't have. daughter you don't have yet, that's right, yeah. Yeah, two's enough, sorry, I have three. I love my third, but two is easier, especially with boys. Yeah. Um, unconscious bias, so it's a one-day offering. Talk a little bit about if someone chooses to make an investment in this offering within our pass, yeah. what's gonna change? What's different in the organization? Why will the return on their investment be so screamingly obvious that they'd want to you know, make it a pervasive offering throughout the organization. There is so much data about this, that if you address unconscious bias and then implement skills and strategies to make a difference, to make progress on biases that might exist in the organization, your organizational results increase. Employees who feel they've been the recipient of bias are three times as likely to leave the organization. Wow. So stop right there. So we'd mentioned earlier, if an organization is invested in engagement mm. and they're invested in building careers for people inside the organization. It's a great insight I learned from Whitney Johnson recently who wrote the book Build an A-Team. Mm. She talked about enduring organizations really do their best to help people build their career path within the company, mm -hmm. don't have to leave it. Yeah. And this is a, an investment in that, is it not? Absolutely, an investment in retention. Yeah. I mean, it costs so much. Right to find a new employee, to ramp right. a new employee, right. instead of growing an employee. Right. And we've done, we've done a lot of research on leadership right. that says one of the number one challenges organizations face is a um, vacuum of ready now leaders, right. right? So this helps with that. Also, there is the invisible cost of every single member of your team or organization who's disengaged. And so if someone feels that they're the recipient of bias, or if they're just looking around and yeah. seeing that people aren't being treated fairly or not valued, um, it's interesting, the conversation around diversity and inclusion. So diversity is about representation. It's who's at the table or having a seat at the table. Inclusion is about what you do with that diversity. So how, how you leverage it, how you maximize it. And if people really have a voice at the table mm -hmm. and a voice that is beyond tolerance, like, okay, you're here. No one wants to be tolerated, right. but if they're really called into the organizational culture, we're making a big decision. We want to know what you think. Um, that can make all the difference in the organizational results that you achieve. Well said. I'm also guessing that for organizations that are interested in risk management mm. and for preventing litigation from having, you know, perhaps well-intended or ill-intended leaders foisting their biases on people, it's probably uh, ideally a great education 
organizations that want to minimize their exposure on that? I think most organizations are required to do compliance training, right? right? Let's tell everyone what is illegal right. and legal, right. which is a very uh, sort of a firm line. Mm -hmm. The reality is that bias and the impacts of bias when it is negative can rise to the level of illegality. Mm -hmm. So if we address it when it's just a bias, if we address this proactively and positively to say, we all have bias, it's a natural part of how the brain works, and we have to ask the question, is this limiting my possibilities or that of those around me? Then we're not even moving into the realm of legality, right? We're addressing the issue before it becomes egregious. I don't know if you know, but you're kind of on the cusp of a little bit of influence bigger than you're used to because your, your, this is your big day coming out, whether you want it or not, because as the lead architect of our new offering, you're going to be inundated with clients asking you to come in and speak to them, which you do, right? I mean, yeah. in, like, in your cracks and crevices, you're willing to keynote, and you do that a lot, and you're quite excellent at it. So for those clients that want to bring you in, um, I won't give you her mobile phone number, but you can call Franklin Covey. But you're also the lead author of a new book with your co-author, Mark Murphy, yeah. one of our consultants from Texas. And you're writing a big book, like a couple hundred page book, mm -hmm. but you've also made the decision to write sort of a preamble mini book. Yeah. About 25 pages coming out on May 1st, digital and in print. Tell us about that process of, of kind of moving from uh, uh, student to practitioner, educator, leader, advisor, to now actually author. What's that like? Um, well, we're 1,500 words in, right? so, okay. I feel, <laughs> so it feels yeah. very real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in, I, I really enjoy research. I read quite a bit. Someone asked me what I would do if I had a year off. And I said, I'd buy a lot of plane tickets and bring a lot of books with me, yeah. right? So just go to different places yeah. and read. And so in being- Well, you're gonna have a lot of plane flights. So you better, you better get <laughs> more the books, books up. Yeah. That's right. um, so I can decide whether I'm writing or reading on yeah. those, right? Um, anyway, so in learning about bias, the more you learn about something, the more you start to create your own perspective. And so that process for me has been really fascinating because you sort of come into it with some humility. I care about this thing so deeply and I want to learn everything I can about it. And for me, it came as a bit of a surprise that as I learned about it, I had opinions and perspectives. So I would take what I learned and say, we can apply this in this way. And knowing the rest of Franklin Covey's content, I became very passionate about the reality that mm it aligns so well with everything else that we're doing. This whole idea of a whole person paradigm, yeah. that you can't separate who you are at work from right. who you are at right. home. It's right. just one thing. Right. And so you bring with that all the good and all the bad, mm -hmm. right? All the baggage and all of your perspectives. Um, and so that alignment was really exciting for me. And then cultivating my own perspectives and opinions, and particularly when I started to have big insight around how we can make progress that it's not enough to just talk about the problem or the impacts, but we really need to do something about it. Um, so that's been exciting. As I've worked with clients, we then get to apply these theories mm -hmm. to their challenges right. Right. in their context. That's gratifying. It's so fulfilling yeah. to see it make a difference, to have people sure tell you. Make sure you um, and your husband make some meals because you're gonna be on the road a lot, <laughs> probably maybe more than your husband knows because I know Don't that. tell, you're telling him, well, Scott, I, don't sorry, tell don't, him. I don't have your husband um, <laughs> join the program. But you also will be the guest on many of our webinars. So mm -hmm. we'll run webinars starting in April and yeah. May around this content. People can preview the new solution at live events around the nation. Yeah. You're available for keynotes occasionally. And congratulations on your coming with your, with your co-author, Mark Murphy, Influence with the book. Look forward to publishing that. And we'll have you back in the coming months as the book 
comes out and you have more client stories and more exciting um, uh, success stories to share. Thank you. I've just been so honored. No, glad you're here, thing. Pamela. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for joining us. We'll see you back next week with a new guest on Franklin Covey's On Leadership series, which you know is a weekly newsletter that comes out complimentary every Tuesday via email. If you're not subscribing, visit franklincovey.com and scroll to the On Leadership tab, click on it, and you can be opted into our newsletter. For those of you who want to access this in podcast format, you're welcome to go on any of your favorite podcast providers, Franklin Covey, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it, and subscribe that way as well. We love it if you would um, read it and rank it and give us any feedback as well. And we'll see you back here next week for On Leadership. Thanks for joining.